0: My name is Reese. I'm one of the members here at this church. It's a pleasure to get to speak to you this evening. Um, there should be Bibles near you on the table. Uh, do you grab one, turn to Genesis chapter one. Uh, we're just going to be really looking at a few verses from that chapter this evening. Um, there should be handouts on the table in front of you as well. That's just to kind of follow the structure of what we're going through. Uh, it's a bit of a fill-in-the-blank situation to, to check if you're listening. Great. Well, the story is told around uh, two and a half thousand years ago that a group of philosophers were sat around talking, which is, of course, all that philosophers are good for. Uh, And they were discussing this question, what is man? What is a human being? And at the center of this conversation is the great philosopher Plato. Uh, They're in Athens, in Greece, which is where all the philosophers hang out, and gradually they tune their definition, what is a man, uh, and Plato throws out this bright idea. He says, man is the featherless biped. He is the creature with two legs, but no feathers. And all the philosophers think on this for a minute, and they think, I think he's got it. The only other creatures that have two legs are are birds, and they all have feathers. So man is the featherless biped, Eureka. Now listening in on all this is a strange fellow. Maybe he was a philosopher, maybe he was a madman. Uh, His name was Diogenes the Cynic. Would you like to be known as so-and-so the Cynic? Uh, He was an odd guy. He spent most of his time without any clothes on. Uh, He did not live in a house, he lived in a large ceramic jar in the center of the market. Um, He liked to cause trouble for the philosophers. And he overhears this this definition, the featherless biped, and he runs to the market, he buys a chicken, kills it, plucks it, throws it into the middle of the philosophers and says, Behold, Plato's man. The philosophers uh, then adjust their definition to describe man as the featherless biped with broad, flat nails. That question that they've been discussing, what is man, what is a human being, uh, people have been discussing it ever since. Uh, It can be surprisingly difficult. It kept the philosophers occupied for long enough. What is man? What are human beings? To be more direct, who are we? On Sunday evenings we've been working through this series called Foundations, thinking about the fundamental truths or doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, And this week we get to the doctrine of humanity, which asks this question, who are we? Or to be more direct, who am I? Every one of us has a vested interest in this question, whether you're a Christian here this evening, whether you're not a Christian, whether you've been coming here for years, whether this is your first time, we would all want to know who we are. Now our instinct as modern people, when it comes to definitions, is to get very scientific. And in 2023, the supposed scientific answer to who are we is that we are Homo sapiens. Now, I wonder how many of us have ever stopped or ever popped our hand up in GCSE biology to say, what does Homo sapiens actually mean? Uh, We can break it down to this. Homo means humans, and sapiens means wise. Come from Latin. But that might seem a bit odd when you think about it. If the definition of human is just wise human. It's a bit circular. What's a human? A wise human. What's a human? A wise human. Well, that word, homo, that refers to a bigger family of which we were supposedly once a part. The Neanderthals, you know, the less evolved folks who sadly lost out to your superior intelligence. And then us and the Neanderthals are meant to be part of an even bigger family with the great apes, the gorillas, the chimps, the orangutans one of the most famous books of the last decade, actually, is called Sapiens. Some of you might have read it. Uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, by a guy called Yuval Noah Harari. He says this in the book. He says, like it or not, we are members of a large and particularly noisy family called the great apes. Our closest living relatives include chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. The chimpanzees are the closest. Just six million years ago, a single female ape had two daughters. One became the ancestor of all chimpanzees, the other is our own grandmother. This has become the almost universal understanding of what human beings are. Uh, Ricky Gervais, the great comedian, he put it a bit more bluntly. He said, we're chimps with brains the size of a planet. Of course we go mad and try and kill each other and worry about what's the point. Of course we do. It's overwhelming. And the more you think about it, the more frightening it is. But can you press a bit further? Okay, maybe we're homo sapiens, the wise ape, but what is the wise ape? And when you push further and further, the answer we ultimately get is that we boil down to mere atoms. There's no invisible spiritual side to life. We don't have something called a soul. Our minds are just a physical chemical process, fizzing and ticking along like gravity or the water cycle we are at the end of the day just atoms whizzing around the void of space past the sun at 67,000 miles an hour and one day all of us bunches of atoms in this room will fizzle into nothingness and that will be that well suffice to say the Christian view of humanity is somewhat different the Christian doctrine of humanity the answer uh, to the question who are we boils down to this. Man is made in the image of God, and that changes everything. Man is made in the image of God. Now, this isn't to get us into debates about uh, creation and evolution. Scientific discussion about the history of the universe and the human race is something Christians uh, should welcome and do. But scientific definitions, they only get you so far. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of the chronicles of Narnia, sequel to The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, the children are in the magical world of Narnia and they meet a star. In Narnia, stars are people. They take form and speak. And Eustace Scrub, what a name, a little scrub. Eustace Scrub, he'd have liked Sapiens. Uh, he's skeptical about all this and he meets the star and they have this exchange In our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the star replies, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. That's not what it is, but only what it is made of. That about sums up, I think, how most of us really feel about the idea of simply reducing humanity to chimps with brains the size of a planet, or to clusters of atoms, whizzing around the sun that's not what we are it's just what we're made of so the Christian view of man is that we are made in God's image and this is spelled out in the very first chapter of the Bible so do look at Genesis 1 um, and we're going to look at verse 26 and a few verses after then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. We're going to just think about uh, one of those verses really this evening, verse 27, which is on the top of the handouts. Uh, so mankind, male and female, is created in the image of God, and they're given instructions, be fruitful, fill the earth, and rule over it. Uh, but what does it really mean that we're made in the image of God? It's probably a phrase that actually that we've all heard, um, even if just once or twice, but we might not really think about what it means. Well, it doesn't mean that God up in heaven looks like a human being, you know, with a long white beard and a flowing robe to match. As we learned a few weeks ago, doing the doctrine of God, God has no body. We can boil the image of God down to two things. One, we have a resemblance to God, and more importantly, we're made for relationships. With God, two R's for you: a resemblance and a relationship. Let's think about resemblance. Now, this is a fairly obvious point on one level. You know, when people say to my daughter, "Oh, she's the," Im-, uh, say about my daughter rather, "she's the image of you, or she has your likeness." What they mean is she resembles me. Uh, it's there in uh, Genesis 1: Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And actually, if you flick on a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 5. Uh, this very same thing is applied to human beings. When Eve gives birth to her son, Seth, it says this, Genesis 5, When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So resemblance is applied to fathers and sons as it is to God and humanity. Resemblance is an idea here. We've just said it's not a physical resemblance. God has no body. So what does it mean? Well, this is where calling us homo sapiens, the wise ape, isn't entirely wrong. Human beings are clearly a kind of animal. In Genesis 1, man is made on the sixth day with the other land animals. And yet we're made separately, last, and in a special way. God reaches into the earth breathes into the dust. So we're a unique kind of animal. That's been evident to human beings for as long as we've been around. They tend to say man is the rational animal. We've got a a power of mind and logic that animals clearly lack. Um, All animals use logic of a kind, and some, apes, for example, far more than others, but none in the way that humans do. We have a power of language, which animals clearly lack. Although, yes, uh, creatures like dolphins have a very sophisticated form of communication. Uh, even the most dolphin-loving marine biologists will tell you you can't call it language. No dolphin has ever written a poem, not even a bad one. Uh, we have a power to craft and make things as human beings, which animals clearly lack. Although crows can do rather impressive things with sticks, no crow uses a stick to go and take dominion of the world. We have logic, we have language, we have craft, and all these things resemble God. We're the logical, wise animal, and God is wisdom itself. We are the speaking animal, and our God is a God who speaks eternally through his Son, the Word. We're the creating animal, our God is the creator. So whenever our minds were over a problem we have to solve, mathematical or practical, Whenever our mouths have to communicate what we think or what we feel, whenever our hands fashion something, whether it's making a pizza in the well or a birdhouse in the men's shed or just a doodle in the margins of your study Bible or on your handouts, you are imaging God. You're ruling over creation in a way that reflects the way that God ultimately rules over it. And yet none of those things, logic, language, craft, exhaust what it means to be made in God's image. That was really helpfully pointed out in the Foundations material that some of us will have watched and read this week. None of those things are exhaustive about what it means to be a human. Why does God make us to resemble him in those ways? Why make us logical, linguistic, and crafty? Well, it's so that we can have relationship with him. So we resemble God, but we're made for relationship with him, and that's the most important part of being in his image. Human beings alone are made for intimate, personal relationship with God. Remember again, Seth was in the image and likeness of his father, Adam. uh, So he resembles him. But as he goes out in the world and resembles his father, and people say, oh, you, you look just like your dad. He does that, loved by his dad and loving his dad. Think of how parents and children love each other simply because they are theirs. There's resemblance, they see that, but there's relationship. They love one another. That's how it's meant to be between us and God. No animal feels a God-shaped hole in its life, but we do. No other animal wonders what it is. The cats of Chesington are not gathered around this evening having a talk on the doctrine of cats. We wonder who we are, and we feel a a hole, a God-shaped hole in the middle of our lives, and maybe that's part of why you're here this evening, because you feel that hole. As St. Augustine the greatest Christian thinker in history probably, uh, was around in the 300s, 400s, he famously wrote these words about the human race in a prayer. He said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's what it means to be made in God's image, to be restless until we rest in him. We're made for him. And being relational like that is, is just another way that we're like God. Did you notice in uh, Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image, not let me make man in my image. Why is that? Because what we see in that verse is a conversation between the persons of the Trinity, which we thought about a few weeks ago. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love each other eternally, and we are made to join in to that relationship. So, we're made in God's image. We resemble him, but most importantly, we're made for relationship with him. That's, that's the doctrine, really, for this evening. We're made in God's image. That's who we are. We resemble him, and we're made to relate to him. But so what? We've laid that out. What does it mean for us? Well, to be honest, an endless amount could be said. We only have so much time. So I've just got two important points to make off the back of this doctrine, two big implications First, it is good that you exist. Now, has anyone ever actually said that to you? It is good that you exist. Break that down. It is good that you exist. It is good that you exist. Every human being who's ever lived has been made in the image and likeness of God. And so it's good that they exist. Doesn't mean the things they go on to do are good, but their existence in itself is a good thing. Whoever you are, uh, whatever your situation in life is, whatever you've done with your life, however you feel about yourself, however others have made you feel about yourself, whether you're a Christian or not, it's good that you exist. It's good that you are here. You are never an exception to that. If the thought ever crosses your mind, would the world be better off without me in it? The answer is always no, because you're made in God's image. You're made like him, and you're made for him. In the the modern world, there are lots of things that can make us feel that isn't true, make us feel like we're insignificant, just a number, anonymous. Maybe you feel lost in the crowd often. I wonder if anyone would really care if you didn't come into school the next day. Or maybe you feel just constantly stuck in the endless drudgery of life, working an unfulfilling job, keeping up with the cost of living, like you're just a cog in the machine. Or maybe once you did feel like you brought a lot to the world, uh, you were needed, you had a role, a place, a community, a trade, but now that's all gone illness, old age, a change of circumstances or something else took all that away and now you feel good for nothing. Well, God says it's good that you exist. You are not simply atoms whizzing around the sun. You are the creation of a loving God made in his image. And we need to hear this because we live in a culture that denies so often that it is good for humans all humans to exist. Christians, we tend to think we live in a very man-centered age, you know, we've shoved God off the throne, put ourselves in his place, and that's true, very true, considered one way. But considered another way, we actually live in a culture that is very anti-human. Because we've rejected the image giver, we resent the image bearer. What's the first thing that happens once man is out of the Garden of Eden? They kill other men. A couple of ways we see the anti-human nature of the society we live in. Uh, The first is the rejection of children. This happens in lots of ways. A current high-profile example maybe is how we talk about people and the environment. Now, it should be obvious to us all, man has not cared for creation in the way that he should, must do better. But one of the world's responses to the damage we do to the environment is to say, well, what we need to do is have fewer children because we've supposedly overpopulated the planets. Scientists, media figures, other people say it's an ethical choice now to only have two children or fewer, maybe even none. Prince Harry and Meghan, whatever else you think about them, we'll leave that out of the room this evening, have become very big advocates of this, saying very boldly and publicly, even though um, the future king of England has three children, they are only going to have two. And they were, in fact, given an award for this enlightened decision. In 2021, Uh, I think the truths we've already looked at should make it clear to Christians just how loathsome that point of view is. And I, I use that word, having reflected on it a lot this week. It is a loathsome thing to say it would be good for a human being not to exist. Any human being, no human being's existence is ever bad news, whether they are planned or unplanned whether they are able-bodied or disabled, it is always good news that they exist. We reject children. We also reject limits. We see how anti-human our culture is in that way. We reject the limits that God puts on human nature, often through technology. Uh, We think we can sheet the limits of our bodies by using technology. Some scientists even say they think they can eradicate death because it's just a glitch in the system. Uh, On a more mundane level, We reject our limits whenever we disappear down our smartphones. God made you to be in one place, at one time, with one set of people. I'm very sorry if it is the set of people you happen to find yourself with. But those are the limits that God has put on you. And it is to reject your human nature to try and escape that all the time. C.S. Lewis, I'll mention him again. He wrote a book to describe our modern world called The Abolition of Man. And that's what we're always trying to do with technology, is to abolish the limits that God has put on us. But they're good. They're part of who we are. You can resent them, fight against them, or you can welcome them and say, Lord, what would you have me do within the limits that you've put on me? You're made in God's image. It's good that you exist. The world tries to reject that in numerous ways. You've just thought about a couple. Our second big point after saying it's good that you exist is to say it's good that you exist as male or female. Look again at that uh, verse in Genesis 1 on the top of your handouts. Uh, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So right there, at the beginning of God's creation of man, given joint top billing on the pyramid stage, is the fact that we're made male and female. In God's image, male and female, there they are together. That distinction is fundamental to who we are. Someone walks in a room, what's the first thing you notice about them? Not their height, not their race, something so basic you don't even notice that you notice it, it's whether they are a man or a woman. That difference is designed by God, and so like everything else he made, it's good. Men and women are both made in God's image, so are equal before Him, and yet we're different. And that's good. We're not identical. We're not interchangeable. We're equal, but different. So, men, boys, it is good that you are men and boys. Women, girls, it is good that you are women and girls. Now, the Bible speaks in a few places very directly to the question of different functions for men and women. And we'll think about a couple of those briefly. And this was touched on in the material this week for those of you doing the Crosslands course. Uh, Most obvious places are where it talks about marriage and family and about leadership in the church. So to think about marriage and family, passages like Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul there says uh, to wives Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He then instructs husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now We don't have time to to go into this at length, but suffice to say, uh, Christians must confess that whatever this means, because it's God's design, it's good. We're told that marriage, in this way, is a picture of how Jesus relates to the church. And there's nothing more good than that, is there, Christians? And when this is done well, it leads to the flourishing of husbands and wives and children and churches and wider society. And it displays the gospel to the whole world. And these things aren't arbitrary, as if, had God instructed differently... We could do it the other way around with uh, wives being heads of their husbands and husbands submitting uh, to them. No, these are part of God's design. The Bible addresses uh, marriage and family. It also addresses uh, church leadership. Uh, In passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 and elsewhere, um, it gives instructions for appointing leaders in the church uh, and it restricts certain forms of leadership exclusively to men. Uh, Now, I'm sure that uh, that bothers some of us. We don't have time to go into it. I would happily talk about it at length with you after the service, as I'm sure would uh, Mike or one of the other elders. And Bible-believing Christians do disagree in good faith about this topic uh, and the extent to which it applies, how it works itself out uh, in church life. But suffice to say, uh, here at King's Church Chesington, we embrace these passages. Uh, Part of the way that that is practiced is that uh, the elders who lead our church are all men, and the task of preaching from the pulpit on a Sunday is also given to men. And we believe that that's good. It's good for the church, and when done rightly, leads to the flourishing of everybody here, male and female. Again, we could talk about this endlessly. You don't have to believe that to be a member of this church, but it's the conviction of the church as a whole. And if that is your belief about God's design for church leadership, then let me encourage you, don't be embarrassed about it. If it's God's design, it's good. So celebrate it, embrace it, lean into it. So The Bible addresses those couple of specific things, um, marriage and family and church leadership. But those of us who embrace those teachings can sometimes be very swift to say, oh, but that's it, there are no other differences at all between men and women, don't worry. But that raises a really important question. If the Bible only acknowledges differences between men and women when it comes to uh, marriage and family and the church leadership, what does that mean if I'm not involved in either of those things? Is there nothing else to being a woman but possibly ending up as a wife or a mother? Is there nothing else to being a man but possibly ending up being a husband or a father or a church elder? Well, the answer is clearly no. Although the Bible gives some specific instructions about these certain areas, it doesn't ask us to ignore what is in front of our eyes about men and women in the rest of life. Simply because the Bible doesn't speak directly to other differences between men and women doesn't mean it's saying that there are no other differences between men and women. It's just that we don't get binding instructions about those things, and so we use our wisdom and our our common sense and consideration of lots of other things um, to work out what that means. We're not asked to leave things at the door uh, that are generally true about men and women. It's good that we're men and women in all of life, not just in a marriage, not just in church leadership, but everywhere. That's how God made us. This is part of why we have a men's ministry and a women's ministry at church. Uh, most of our ministry is unisex, like certain hairdressers, because we are mostly similar. And so most of what we do is, is the same together. But that's not always true, and that's good. So sometimes in life, it's an okay thing, even a good thing, to put up a sign that says, no boys allowed or no girls allowed. And it's good for the church when we do that in our ministries. sometimes. It's good that men can gather on the curry nights to encourage each other and build relationships. It's good that women can gather at a women's breakfast to do the same. And then when we come together for the bulk of our time, the whole church benefits from that. So we should gladly throw ourselves into fellowship with other men and women, knowing uh, that it's good for the church family as a whole. Now, of course, that can turn bad. Men sin in characteristic ways. Women sin in characteristic ways. We can be overly exclusive towards each other and keep those no boys, no girls allowed signs up when they should come down. And we have to beware of harmful stereotypes as well. Yet the existence of harmful stereotypes doesn't mean that there aren't things that are generally true about men and women that are evident to us all and that most human societies happily acknowledge. And those of us who don't always conform to some of those general truths, well, we shouldn't think that means that they are untrue. And we shouldn't think it means that we don't fit in our sex. I cannot think of anything worse than clinging to a cliff edge on the Welsh coast on a trip to Snowdon. That sounds like a terrible afternoon. It really does that doesn't undo the fact that it's something that generally most of the other members of my sex quite like to do and it doesn't mean that I'm not a real man, whatever you say doesn't mean that I'm not a real man I would just rather be at the site of local historical interest which is the alternative given to others, so I've been assured if you do go Um, things like that they don't mean that um, there aren't general differences and they don't mean that you don't fit if you tend to go differently on those sorts of things. We're created male and female and that's good. And it's good throughout all of life. And this fact is possibly one of the most important things for Christians to affirm these days. For a couple of reasons that we'll think about quickly as we draw to the end. Uh, It's important to affirm the goodness of male and female because men and women face unique challenges. Many men today feel lost. Men account for 75 percent of suicides, The suicide rate is at its highest ever, men aged 45 to 49 at the most risk, the age at which maybe they realize they are not the man they thought they would be. Uh, Young men, meanwhile, are lost for role models. They flock to people like Andrew Tate for answers about what it means to be a man, because when they ask anyone else, all they're told is that masculinity is toxic. Uh, Women, meanwhile, are three times more likely than men to experience a mental health problem. Thirty years ago, they were only twice as likely. and that same period of time, self-harm among women has tripled. A lot of young women are lost when it comes to what it means to be a woman, because when they ask, all they're told is that they shouldn't worry because they can be just the same as men. Our world makes life hard for men and women in unique ways. There are things that maybe can be done about that. One of the most impactful things that can help that is for the church to be telling the world If you're a man, it's good to be one. If you're a woman, it is good to be one. So the unique challenges that men and women face, that's a reason to affirm the goodness of the difference. Uh, Another thing that we must touch on uh, these days, why we should affirm the goodness of men and women, is because of the reality of transgenderism. Um, This is a huge topic, not one that we can uh, dwell on, and is one that is very sensitive I'm sure, uh, already impacts many of us in this room in different ways. Um, Transgenderism, the idea that although one might have a male or female body, one can identify as whatever gender they uh, wish or feel that they are, and can even alter their body to match. Um, This, as I said, is something that may well affect some of us in this room in different ways. Um, It affects me. I have two people who identify as transgender in my extended family. So I know uh, firsthand the things that this throws up. Um, Those people, like anyone else, are made in God's image. I'm called to love them and have compassion on them. People who experience this are usually in a lot of pain and confusion and anguish. And Christians, above uh, above all other people, should be loving them and having compassion on them. But in view of what we've seen this evening, um, we must show love and compassion in a way that doesn't involve us affirming or accommodating the way in which those people, sadly, one way or another, have rejected God's design for them as male and female. We're made in God's image, male and female, and that's good. Our bodies are what make us male and female. And they are good. Bodies that in the first place God made by reaching into the dust and forming. Or when he made Eve, reaching into Adam's side and taking his flesh and fashioning that body. Those bodies are good. And to reject that is a tragic thing. And as part of loving and having compassion upon people, Christians who believe in the image of God should be willing to say so. We've covered a lot of ground this evening, we've touched on some very big topics, um, things we could spend whole evenings on by themselves, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of food for thought and discussion for those of us in the Crossland session at the end, and I would very happily talk with anybody uh, any other time about stuff that we've touched on this evening. Let's remind ourselves of what we've said. We've asked, who are we? We live in a world that tells us we're wise apes or clusters of atoms, but that's to confuse what we're made of with who we are. We are, in fact, made in God's image, loved and known and lovingly crafted by our Father in heaven. And so we resemble him with our minds, our language, our craft. We're a great and noble creature. And God's made us in a way that we are going to be in direct, personal, loving relationship with him. That's what we're made for, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Amen. And this is a message that our world desperately needs today. We need to affirm it's good that we exist. We live in a world that rejects children, that rejects our limits, but it's good that we're here. And it's good that we're here as male and female. It's fundamental to who we are. God gives us some specific instructions for how male and female plays out in marriage, in the church, and that's good. But Christians should not be embarrassed about that and should affirm that that's how God's made us. We should ask, Lord, how can we have the best marriages? How can we have the best church family? in accordance with your design for those things. It's good that we're men and women in all of life, not just marriage and church leadership, and so we should look for how, in our unique ways as men and women, we can honor God and serve each other. I'll end with my third and final C.S. Lewis reference. Uh, In Prince Caspian, one of the other chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the great king, picture of Jesus himself, talks to the children about what it means to be human. He says to them, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Next week, we'll think about the doctrine of sin and why being human is shame enough to bow the shoulders of emperors. But today we thought about the doctrine of humanity of being sons of adam and daughters of eve and so we should go away from here even if you are the poorest of beggars with your head held high because of how god made you whether as a son of adam or as a daughter of eve and above all we should be content with that because look uh, because god looks at it and says it is very good Thank you for listening. Let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that we have seen in your words. And there is much here, many things to discuss, things that will um, raise questions. Um, I pray that we would have the time and the space to do that. But above all, I pray that we would go away from here with a sense of the goodness of your design for us. Because you are a good God. Amen.